Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitic.com slash donate. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. Last month marked the fifth anniversary of the end of the protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline in Standing Rock, North Dakota. For nearly a year, thousands of people camped, prayed, and protested to block the Dakota Access Pipeline. They argued it lacked proper environmental review and endangered both water supplies and historic sites. Those who traveled to Standing Rock as water protectors came from hundreds of U.S. federally recognized tribes. There were also indigenous people from all over the world including Sami people from northern Norway, Sweden, and Finland. Yes, there are indigenous Europeans, too. Shortly after the 2016 election, I went to Standing Rock as an independent reporter. One night, during a blizzard, Che Jim, an enrolled member of the Navajo Nation, and Giovanni Sanchez, a member of the Mexica tribe, sang Wopila. It's a Lakota song and word which means thanksgiving for all of existence and the blessing inherent in each moment of it. Che Jim, a veteran and founder of the organization Healing Arrows, told me why he and others came. With this particular situation here, it's important to remember that this doesn't just face the Standing Rock people or, or even the people who, who, uh, who drink out of this uh, water, all the 18 million other people, but uh, that problems like this exist all, everywhere. The encampments at Standing Rock are long gone, but the pipeline story continues to evolve. Investigative journalist Jenny Monet was one of the first reporters on the ground there five years ago. Among her many projects, she runs her own newsletter, Indigenously, Decolonizing Your Newsfeed. I checked in with her this week about the significance of the anniversary and the current state of the pipeline battle. I really appreciate you drawing attention to what otherwise was also a five-year anniversary of when those camps were raised in late February, the protest camps. And I think people could probably scroll back their memories and recall those images of that time from five years ago where you saw, um, you know, structures from anything from tiny homes to teepees being completely bulldozed by uh, federal agents, a small army mm-hmm. of um, National Guardsmen and um 
militarized police that had kind of colored the anti-pipeline demonstrations over the months at Standing Rock. I was there on the ground, and in late February, uh, there was an important court decision, the Supreme Court, that had denied to... um, to hear the case from energy transfer partners, the oil company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. They were trying to essentially take the case to court to argue against what has been central to the court battle at Standing Rock, which centers around this environmental impact statement. It is what lives at the heart of the struggle right now um, that could essentially uh, stop this pipeline. And in this newsletter, you write, The pipeline will not be forced to shut down in the meantime, as was previously court-ordered. So that's referring to, even though there's been new court decisions, it's not going to stop the pipeline from operating. You know, who has the ball here? Who has authority and right-of-way? I think the natives do on a lot of different levels. And that has to do with this new era that we're living in under the Biden administration, where there is still an unprecedented number of natives in key positions in his administration. There is now a real opportunity for uh, decision makers to take a look at how these Infrastructure projects, right? Dams, mines, pipelines have all been decided over centuries of the colonization of this country with natives at the helm, not just with Deb Holland as the Secretary of the Interior, but we have Michael Connor, who is Taos Pueblo, and he was recently appointed as the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Civil Works, which is third in command over the Department of Army and has direct oversight over the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And if you know anything about the Corps, they have a horrible track record on basically taking lands and displacing Native people over and over and over again. And Standing Rock uh, has already endured this once before with, with the Oahe Dam, of which it's now trying to protect for its water supply. So you have now have a Native who... Uh, is sitting at the helm of these this decision-making, whose very um, lifeline comes from actual water protection. He stems from the Taos Pueblo. And that's also what I wrote about, was connecting what Minnie Machoni stands for, water is life. And I just find the symbolism so rich. So there's also been a change in the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe leadership. It recently uh, elected a new leader. Can you tell me more about that? That's right. Um, Last fall, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe had a tribal election. And from that, they have elected a Janet Alkire, who is a citizen of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, and she represents the first woman to lead the tribe in over six decades, which is really exciting. I think people think that, you know, when those camps were raised and the protesters all went home, that suddenly this this battle to stop a pipeline seemingly ended. You were there for I in December of 2016 when they temporarily stalled that pipeline to take a look yep. at safety issues. And with all of this indigenous representation uh, in the federal government, um, there is no longer, I think, the hurdles that it once took to do a lot of the explaining of treaty rights and consultation. Those concepts are already understood. 
I was there. I was invited by some friends in uh, radio uh, to join a group of both Indigenous and non-Indigenous folks at a camp at Standing Rock. And I went around doing extensive reporting. And in one case, I happened to be at the right place at the right time with Lakota elder Phyllis Young on that day in December 2016 that the Obama administration basically, you know, reversed itself and and gave grounds for blocking the pipeline. Of course, that did not stand up uh, once President Trump took office the, the next month. But, you know, she said to me, I said, how do you feel? And she's like, I'm used to promises being broken. And at the time, you know, like there's a part of me that's still a little like, ah, oh, shucks, you know, can't you just be happy? And of course she was, <laughs> she was right. It, it was a transformative trip for me. But what I really realized was um, kind of how much this was a seminal moment for Indigenous people to meet each other. I mean, what kind of feelings did you have Standing Rock is one of those things that always evolves for me as an Indigenous woman, as a, an Indigenous survivor of violence, as um, someone whose very job it has been to chronicle these really painful, traumatic pasts and not have them be taken seriously. All of that, right? It was super loaded. And not to mention that you yourself were treated in ways that are unbecoming of a human being and a journalist. Yeah, and that too, right? I mean, the whole press freedom and then also people just not taking me seriously as a journalist because I'm brown and I happen to be, quote unquote, dressed like all the protesters, (laughs) which I still don't know what that means other than wearing clothes um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and looking Native. I think that what you struck most importantly for I was what I had always called the test kitchen for living under Trump, you know, these challenges that people were willing to stand up and fight for. I think that we have done that. And now we find ourselves here in a new administration, still with many challenges, but I think really benefiting from the gains of those intersectionalities uh, that were made at Standing Rock, people identifying, you know, Common struggles um, that were all too laid bare in 2020, mm-hmm. right? After George yeah. Floyd from the pandemic, the inequalities that, you know, marginalized people share across the board. I'm grateful that we now can talk about things like colonization and um, inequalities on multiple levels that no longer take a lot of unpacking like they used to. Um, I don't think that we're we're completely enlightened. And I hope that we never are. And we continue to grow in that way. So what's bringing you joy? That's something we ask a lot of people. But, you know, tell us about where you are now physically and what you're up to and what brings you joy. Well, hearing from you, Farai, brings me joy. (laughs) I do mean that. I do mean that. Hearing from my friends, you know, I feel like I haven't seen my friends in a while. I guess any time I can connect with people that I really honor and celebrate in my life, that brings me joy. My writing has been bringing me joy, although I feel like there's never enough time. And then I'm really enjoying exploring this new sense of self where I am in Alaska. I'm not an Alaska native. I'm from Laguna Pueblo in New Mexico, but I've been coming to Alaska for about 15 years for reporting. And I've recently relocated here last July. And 
I'll be honest with you, I've survived my first winter. We're not completely out of the woods yet. And it's really grown on me because I've immersed myself in understanding it and exploring all of its sides. Well, Jenny, we will have to talk to you about further reporting adventures and life adventures, but I was profoundly just kind of existentially changed by going to Standing Rock and witnessing the gathering of Indigenous people from around the world, particularly from North America, in support of the idea of self-determination and just frankly due process. But much bigger than that, that, you know, the, the right to live, the right to love, the right to have healthy children and clean water, all of that was so meaningful to me. And uh, thank you for sharing more about the updates. Well, anytime, Farai. Thank you so much for noticing the um, update on on Standing Rock because um, I was really surprised that it was so underreported in the press. Thank you. That's Jenny Monet, investigative journalist, media critic, and editor-in-chief of the newsletter Indigenously, decolonizing your news feed. You can find it at indigenously.org. Coming up next, historian Taya Miles on her latest book, All That She Carried, and its lessons for today, plus racial politics surrounding the conflict in Ukraine. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. For some Americans, passing down family heirlooms is standard practice. But for those of us whose ancestors were enslaved, the picture is different. During slavery, humans were considered property. Families were separated and keepsakes were hard to get, let alone to hold on to. One now popular museum artifact flies in the face of that reality, a century and a half old embroidered cotton sack. MacArthur winner and Harvard historian Taya Miles saw the cloth bag on display at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It inspired her latest book, All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, a Black Family Keepsake. All That She Carried won last year's National Book Award for nonfiction. I sat down with Taya to talk about her book and the valiant struggle of enslaved people to preserve dignity, love, and family heritage. So this book is magnificent. I have been spending time listening to the audiobook version with my mother, and um, it just you know, we both talked about the intensity of the experience. Like at points, I've cried about the narratives in your book. um, And it really stuck with me. It's so deep and so powerful and so critical to talk about the history that is not told. So describe Ashley Sack and what it looks like now and a bit of its journey. Well, right. I cried many a time, too, working on this project, doing the research, uh, writing the drafts. When I read from the book, I oftentimes can't help but cry because it is such a sad history, such a mournful history. But Ashley Sack, an artifact that has been preserved from the period of enslavement, really helps us to see both the pain and the perseverance. And that is why I love this object so much and why I think it has so much to teach us. Ashley Sack is the name that was given by museum curators to 
an old cotton bag from the 1850s, an agricultural sack used for carrying seeds or for carrying cotton. It ended up in the hands of an enslaved Black woman named Rose, who was living in Charleston uh, with her enslavers. And Rose took this sack, this plain, ordinary, utilitarian bag, and she packed it with critical items that she thought would help to preserve her daughter's life because her daughter, Ashley, was about to be sold away from her. The inscription that was embroidered on the sack by the descendant of Rose and Ashley sewed these words. My great-grandmother Rose, mother of Ashley, gave her this sack when she was sold at age nine in South Carolina. It held a tattered dress, three handfuls of pecans, a braid of Rose's hair. Told her it be filled with my love always. She never saw her again. Ashley is my grandmother. Ruth Middleton, 1921. Mm. Yeah, you, you really capture the vulnerability throughout this book of Black women, Black mothers, and Black children. And yet this is a story with so much hope in it. And I, and I want you to start out a li- with a little bit of the prologue. Can you read to us? Just as Rose and Ashley found on their forced journeys through slavery's landscape, there is no safe place of escape left for us. The walls of the world are closing in. We need to get out of here in a hurry. We need to get out of these frames of mind and states of emotion that elevate mastery over compassion, division over connection, and greed over care, separating us one from another and locking us in. Our only options in this predicament, the state of political and planetary emergency, are to act as first responders or die not trying. We are the ancestors of our descendants. They are the generations we've made. With a radical hope for their survival, what will we pack into their sacks? And so when you think about this book, to me, this book is an embodiment of exactly what Ashley's sack represented, which is something to carry forward. And I loved how in your book you talk about um, in the act of imagining that her daughter could have a little bit of food to survive and a lock of her hair and these other things that she packed into it. She was imagining her daughter had a future, and she did. And you are part of that. You know, what's your relation to this story? You know, we, we haven't talked explicitly about that yet. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we are all a part of that, Varai. And that, that is how I tried to tell the story and how I tried to write the book, to open the sack up wide, to make room for us all, because this is a story for Black America, a story for Black women, but also a story for the whole country, because slavery is the history of our country. Mm. I came to know the SAC because a journalist down in Georgia told me about it and insisted that I had to see it. And when I finally did see it in the Smithsonian, I just could not walk away. Yeah. 
And you have a whole section on hair in the book. And so what does the braid represent to you? And what did hair represent in the context of enslavement? What did it mean for, for Ashley to receive a lock of her mother's hair? Mm-hmm. Hair can be viewed as kind of a trivial thing. And yet we know when looking at the history of Black women, it was not trivial in the least. It was centrally important to Black women's maintenance of their own dignity. And yet they had to, you know, fight tooth and nail to try to protect that dignity. And hair is just one way they did it. And so when you're dealing with that few items, you know that each item is important. That braid must have meant everything to Rose. It would have meant everything to Ashley. Our hair means everything to us because it's a symbol of ourselves, our belief in ourselves. We see in the record of slavery, uh, Black women taking their Sundays off to do their hair up, you know, to plait their hair, to twine their hair, maybe to untwine their hair if they had had it twined during the week, Mm -hmm. to find pieces of fabric that they thought were were beautiful or, or bright, and to put that fabric around their hair, to braid their hair, and do that for one another. This was an act of love. This was an act of self-preservation. And this is how we know that when Rose cut off one of her braids for Ashley, she was continuing that message of self-love, self-care for her daughter. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. We're speaking with Taya Miles, historian and author of the book, All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, A Black Family Keepsake. You prepared a second reading for us that gets to some of the stakes and what people were facing. Um, Could you share it with us? I'd be happy to. So this second passage comes from the chapter called The Auction Block. The scenes of forced parting that shadow slave narratives are difficult for us to absorb as 21st century readers. Vivid descriptions of fathers begging and mothers wailing as children cried out for rescue are almost too much for us to bear, even with the distance of time, which operates as our emotional shields. In a culture devoid of moral values and in which they were financial assets, children like Ashley were hand-selected for victimization. If we can hardly contend with the enormity of despair that characterized these thousands of partings, how would a child cope with the sudden loss of family. In our modern era, in 2018, the U.S. Federal Administration began arresting and incarcerating undocumented immigrants at the southern border. According to clinical psychologists who work with these children and research psychologists who assess collected data on their condition, the research demonstrated an intensification of fear, a feeling of helplessness, and a sense of endangerment among these youths. Children taken away from their parents experienced increased symptoms of anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder, enduring mental health effects, quote, on par with beating and torture, end quote. The psychological well-being of these already fragile children shatters when they are deprived of parental care. So why did you choose that to share with us? I want to share that with you because it's an example of a place in this history and a place in the book where we can see the past and the present coming together and meeting. I wanted to 
sort of shake us up and help us to see that we actually have data that can shed a light on how a child like Ashley may have felt. Mm. We don't have her own words. Mm -hmm. We don't have a narrative by her. But we know that psychologists who study children today who are separated from their parents have found that these children, they struggle for a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. I think that among all the other gifts that you give us is this gift, very painful at times, of feeling something for for Ashley. And I think of my mother's great-grandmother. When she was a little kid, her family were free Black farmers in Virginia during the Civil War. It was a slave-holding state and, of course, the seat of the Confederacy. And so she lived into her mid-90s. And when my mom was still a little kid, she repeated this story. The patty rollers came and they threw me in a ditch. And she, my great-great-grandmother, was talking about the patty rollers or patrollers who would snatch up people and sell them into slavery, a la 12 years a slave. And her own relatives had to hold her down as a little girl and keep her quiet to keep her from being kidnapped into slavery. Um, And it was only after my mother's great-grandmother passed that she realized, my mom realized she'd been talking about kidnapping and the patrollers. So I almost didn't exist, you know. Um, My ancestral line could have been snatched away and sold into the deeper South. And if you were, air quotes, free, like her, it wasn't really that free. And children were not free. So I really relate, you know, and I think a lot of us looked at the kids in cages and were like, oh, that's horrible. And yet it happened. And it happened in what we think of as the beacon of democracy sometimes. So How do you think people navigated their own ownership of themselves when they literally did not own themselves? Yes. Well, I mean, that's that's the question. That's what we need to know, right? Um, Because we we want to respect them by doing our best to understand their experiences. And we want to be able to gather what we can from their experiences to ensure the future survival of our children, our descendants, you know, even ourselves. So yes, we want to know how they did it. One of the things that I worked hardest on in this book was trying to see if I could come closer to approaching what it was like to be the mother of an enslaved child. Mm. A person having to, to live with the fact that they did not have the ability, the freedom, the right to, to determine their own life choices, to protect their children, to choose who who they would love, to maintain and hold on to the fruits of their labor. They didn't have that. I, I cannot imagine how helpless and hopeless I would feel if I were in that situation. But we know that even being in that situation, our ancestors, Many of them, not all, because you know we lost we lost many to this torture and brutality. But our ancestors managed to push through. They managed to make a way. They managed to form families and to love one another and to braid each other's hair and to find joy and to make art. And I think they did it because of these bonds of love. At least that's what. The artifact of Ashley Sack 
tells me. That's what I drew from this research and from this project fundamentally is that through love, they made a way. Yeah. And, and you wrote a guest essay in the New York Times last month titled, When Everyone is Talking About the End, Talk About Black History. I absolutely loved it and loved that you talked about the climate crisis as part of the framing. Tell us a little bit about that essay and, and what you were trying to get at. My goodness. I mean, every day it feels like we're, we're walking further down the path of chaos, tumult, and the things that we know breaking down, right? And this has been happening for years. When Donald Trump won that election, it felt like things were falling apart. We saw violence mount, racial violence mount. We saw political separation and vilification increase. People can't even talk to each other anymore. Now we're seeing this unbelievable set of scenes from Europe, We're seeing the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. It feels like things are falling apart. It really does. And my approach to it was sometimes to just try to hold it at bay, hold it at bay, you know, keep on keeping on, right? And we do have to keep on keeping on, as our ancestors did. But at the same time, we can't address the problems and crises we face by burying our heads in the sand, We might even say that part of the reason why we are in this maelstrom of crises right now, we have buried our heads in the sand for too long around things like climate change, around things like political conflict and division, around things like the continuing legacies of slavery, around racism. That has not really put us in a good position to work together to try to deal with some of these existential threats. We have to look at it. We have to recognize that, yes, something huge is going on. And I decided to try to put a name to that something huge to help us. I think naming things helps us to get a hold of them and to begin to think about them and to understand them. And I decided to name that thing change. And then lo and behold, I was right back into the research of all that she carried, you know, of this book of slavery, because I think this was the condition that Black people who were held as chattel-faced. Constant change, chaos, fear, anxiety. Maybe the desire to say, I can't face it today. But if they hadn't faced it today, we wouldn't be here for I. Absolutely. They faced it. We are here, and we have to be here in the same way for our descendants. And you also quote Octavia Butler from The Parables. And I and Lauren Olamina is one of my heroes, and I think that of a lot of people, um, who is a character in The Parables series uh, that she did, who is able to face chaos and change when other people can't wrap their brains around it. I'm still going to, I think I'm going to need a few more readings of all that she carried um, because it is really landed with me in my heart space, my brain space, and my soul space. Taya, thank you so much. Oh, Farai, thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. That's Taya Miles, professor of history at Harvard University and Radcliffe alumnae professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. She's the author of All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, A Black Family Keepsake. Coming up next, the racial politics within the Ukraine conflict. 
with Fordham University's Christina Greer and UPenn History PhD student Kimberly St. Julian Varnon. You're listening to Our Body Politic. What if I told you that there's a podcast that delivers all the real, none of the fake, can make you laugh and give you hope all at the same time? Alicia Garza, author of The Purpose of Power, has her own podcast called Lady Don't Take No. Alicia is also the principal at the Black Futures Lab and the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network. She's talked to Elizabeth Warren, Laverne Cox, Angelica Ross, and more. Listen and subscribe to Lady Don't Take No with Alicia Garza on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. Joining me this week is political scientist and associate professor at Fordham University, Dr. Christina Greer. Hi, Christina. Hi there. How's it going? Going well. And we have Kimberly St. Julian Varnon, PhD student in history at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you for having me. So... Kimberly, I want to start with you. There have been reports of racial discrimination at the border of Ukraine and Poland. There are videos of people of color being blocked from boarding trains. And you have been in contact with African students evacuating from Sumy, a northeastern Ukrainian city hit by Russian airstrikes on Monday. It killed 21 people, including two children. So what is the current reality for Black refugees and other people of color trying to leave Ukraine? And, and why are there Black people in Ukraine to begin with? Not that we aren't everywhere, but I'm just saying. <laughs> so the situation has changed so much since the war started two weeks ago. The students I've been in contact with before who weren't in Sumy but were in other places in Ukraine, they've gotten through to Poland and some of them are already back home. The problem is now... They've gotten from Sumy, and most of them are heading towards the Polish or the Hungarian border. But if you don't have diplomatic presence there from your home country, you're still having a problem getting through. So you Mm -hmm. have a humanitarian crisis at the border, but you also have the problem of once these students and foreign residents who are of color get out of Ukraine, being processed in Poland, being processed in Hungary, Slovakia, they aren't EU citizens. So they don't have, you know, the same privileges But the EU agreement about Ukrainian refugees is only for Ukrainian passport holders who get, you know, free passage and get accepted into the EU. This does not count for third country nationals. So all these African students, Indian students, Middle Eastern students, they count as third country nationals. The African students I was in contact with, they get 30 days in Hungary and then they have to go to another country or they have to go back home. So it's a very complicated situation. But... The diaspora is everywhere. And there are these people called Afro-Ukrainians. They exist. Um, They're also Afro-Russians. So you have first and second generation Afro-Ukrainians. Many of them, one of their parents was an African student or an African worker who lived in Ukraine, who settled down and had a family. So you have people of color who are native Ukrainians. um, And they are also unique in this situation because you have the problem of when you're Ukrainian, you're getting across the border. If you're denied your Ukrainian-ness, then that means you're not being allowed to stay into these EU countries for the amount of time you're supposed to. Professor Greer, how do you factor the African diaspora into how you look at geopolitical conflicts, not just the Ukraine, but in general? Yeah, well, I think what Kimberly raises is a really important point that I feel like I bring up a lot 
when we're talking about Blacks in America, which is, can we ever be full citizens? And what we're seeing now is like, this is a conversation on a global level. It's like, as you just said, Farai, Black people are everywhere. We've been everywhere. I have met folks in Tokyo. I There used to be a Russian newscaster who was Afro-Russian. And I always think about Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about Paul Robeson in his time, not just in Europe, but obviously in Russia and in other countries. Or, you know, when W.B. Du Bois is kicked out of America as well and spending time on the continent, but also spending time in Europe and Russia and Asia. And so when we're looking at Afro-Ukrainians or Asian Ukrainians and this this idea that, well, whiteness is nationality and citizenship. Even though these people are carrying proper passports, proper paperwork, it's still a question of, well, do they belong? And so as we grapple with these questions on American soil, we can look across the water and see people who are our people, who are still going through the same racism, white nationalism. We can all agree what is going on is horrible and it's an atrocity and we need to keep our eye on the prize. However, I'm just still worried about not just the Afro-Ukrainians who are trying to get out, and we know that the racism and white supremacy is global, right? And we can't just think about it as an American, a uniquely American problem or a uniquely British problem. But where was the outrage in Afghanistan or Syria or Haiti or in the southern border, Kimberly's from Texas, right? Like we have been doing this to people. It's just those people didn't look like white people. And the the conversation has been totally different now that it's like, I can't believe these mothers are separated from their children. Well, what about what happened at the border when Donald Trump separated all those children who were too young to even know their names? They'll never be back with their parents. My level of compassion is definitely there for what's going on. But if we're going to have this collective outrage and concern. My question for a lot of these folks is, well, where was it last month or the month before that with all these folks who have been denied citizenship and also humanity? And that's the real troubling piece that I'm I'm sort of struggling with and sitting with today. Kimberly, when you look at this media coverage against the lens of your expertise at examining Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, how do you think we might be able to better frame this? As a journalist of 32 years, I find it hard to imagine a world where racial cultural biases and nationalistic biases don't influence the news coverage. Right now, there is mass starvation in Afghanistan, and that's totally been pushed off of the news radar, for example. But even in Afghanistan, there was widely criticized news coverage in the U.S. that talked about how they had light eyes and how they looked like Americans. And is that really, you know, our standard for humanity is that looks like American means looks white means we care? I've been working on Ukraine since, you know, I was 20 years old. So and, it's and interesting why? to me. Let me just interrupt right? your answer. Yeah, why, <laughs> why did you choose that? Yeah, I'm just curious. So I've been studying Soviet and Russian history since my freshman year of college. Uh, my first mm. history course I signed up for was the history of the Soviet Union. And since then, I've just been like, this is my jam. This is what I do. I told people, Russia is very much like Texas. So I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I use critical race theory in my work, which is also why I'm in Pennsylvania doing my dissertation and not Texas. This is all about proximity to whiteness. Because in 2014, when Russia invaded eastern Ukraine and when it forcibly annexed Crimea and started actively oppressing the minority Crimean Tatar population who are Muslim, none of y'all said anything. No one was saying, oh, these Ukrainians look like us. No one was saying the Crimean Tatars, they have hair like us. So, like, the problem for me is this proximity to whiteness that Ukraine has gained is very new. And I mean, like, a month ago, new. But also... 
you hear these little words like they're relatively civilized. They're relatively like us, which mm. shows you the proximity to whiteness. It, it's happening right now. But I also want to see if it'll be existing in, in two months, because last month they didn't look like you. And that's why we're in the situation we're in now. I think the media and me- people within the media are definitely showing and saying the quiet part out loud. now. Yeah. And I appreciate that because we always said you thought this way and now you're proving it. And I just want to pull up a couple of quotes uh, very much to this point. These were compiled in an article by The Independent from the UK. A CBS News correspondent apologized. He used the civilized term. This is a relatively civilized, relatively European, you know, on and on and on. And then there was actually someone from Al Jazeera English who also said, these are prosperous middle class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from the Middle East or North Africa. They look like any European family that you'd live next door to. So it was striking to me that it's not just, you know, one media outlet originating in one nation, that this is kind of a global bias towards what civilization looks like. I'm going to come out of us discussing the frame of race and this geopolitical construct to also talking about what the U.S. government is doing. This past Wednesday, congressional leaders reached a bipartisan agreement to provide Ukraine and European allies with $13.6 billion. It's part of a larger $1.5 trillion government funding package. Dr. Greer, at a time when the two parties can agree on almost nothing, including things like school lunch programs, why are we seeing bipartisan support here? Well, I think this bipartisan support comes from Kimberly's point, which is, you know, part of what I studied in my book about Black ethnics is like how other white groups become white. And all of a sudden, Ukrainians are now white. And we have to understand that a country that is deeply embedded in white supremacy and anti-Black racism patriarchy and capitalism, that's on full display in this conversation now that we're talking about what is now perceived as a white nation. So this is, as you said, this is a Congress that couldn't even agree on infrastructure, which was always the sort of softball. But when it comes to the money to give to another perceived white nation, everyone's on board. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be on board, but I do think that it should be noted when we looked at Afghanistan from last month or Syria and Yemen from a few months prior, or what is happening to Haitians at the southern border of Texas? There was no bipartisan support and there was barely any Democratic support or outrage. That's why we're seeing folks that are like, we have to put this to an end. We can't have Europeans feeling unsafe. We can't have a ground war in Europe. It's like, but is it okay to to have a ground war in Afghanistan for 20 years when they had nothing to do with 9-11? And so I think my frustration is, at this moment, who gets to become white? And those are the people who get not just the attention, but also the resources they need. Because when we start talking about mothers and children, there are mothers and children all over this world who are struggling, who will never see their children again, who have given birth in caves or on the street with bombs going on around them. It should be commended that they're working together in a bipartisan way, but we have to ask ourselves why. What is the root cause of this excitement to work together on behalf of whiteness? You are listening to Sip in the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea, and this week we're discussing how race impacts the Ukrainian refugee crisis, plus the overall U.S. response with Dr. Christina Greer, political scientist and associate professor at Fordham University, and Kimberly St. Julian Varnon, Ph.D. student in history at the University of Pennsylvania. 
If you're just tuning in, you can catch the whole conversation on our podcast. Just find Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. Kimberly, I'm going to come back to you as someone who, as you put it, has studied, uh, you know, the former Soviet Union ever since your early um, college education. As we look at people of color globally, how do you view the ongoing question of race, particularly with the U.S. former Soviet axis, U.S. Russian axis, you know, For example, I talked to some Africans who were like, yeah, the Russians actually were better to us than the United States. And that's a very complicated thing to hear. Absolutely. And I think this is something that's been missing in American coverage, but also Western coverage of this war. Russia has, you know, for the past 15 some odd years, been heavily investing in the continent. Um, And so in these African students, there's a reason they're there. Ukraine, since the Soviet period, has welcomed African students. There have been thousands of people from Africa who have studied and lived in Ukraine. And including many of the students who have left, a lot of them say they want to come back when it's safe. They want to finish their educations. So we have to also think about what has the former Soviet Union offered the continent and offered Middle Eastern countries and Southeast Asian countries that the West hasn't offered. In terms of geopolitical understanding of this war, I think the key thing is Putin wants to reshape our geopolitical order. And he said it a few times that he wants a normalization of relations. That does not mean what people think it means. It's not we want peace. When he says normalization of relations, he means he does not want what he perceives as a unipolar world with the United States and Western institutions being the only centers of power. And he said that multiple times. So I think what he's trying to do is show if you are not of a particular realm or a particular rung on the European ladder, NATO's not going to help you. Yeah. So you need to come and join on the Russian side, on the Chinese side. And, and ally with us because we can actually help you, but we can also harm you. And I think this is a key thing when we talk about like American support for Ukraine. Um, one, I think the bipartisanship is, is fascinating to me because literally three weeks ago, Republican talking heads were saying Ukraine was in the wrong and they were, you know, saying a lot of things that were supporting Russia. If we don't understand long term what Russia has been doing, and the moves it has been making on the geopolitical level outside of Western Europe, we're not going to understand why you have countries like India who are abstaining in UN Security Council votes. Right. Like they have significant economic and political backlash that will happen to them if they turn against Russia. Yeah. And I just want to say that for me, as someone who supports freedom and self-determination, including the freedom of the Ukrainian people, I think it's really important for us to have these tough conversations. I don't want people to perceive this as anti-freedom or anti-freedom for Ukrainian, but freedom has always been allocated in different measures to different types of people. Americans feel many different kinds of ways about what it means for Americans to engage in the world. And on that point, Dr. Greer, coming back to you, Vice President Kamala Harris traveled to Poland this week. And in addition to these reports about racism at the Polish-Ukrainian border, she also arrived days after the U.S. rejected Poland's proposal to send fighter jets to Ukraine. Since the beginning of the Biden-Harris administration, how have we seen the vice president's role in foreign relations evolve? I wrote a piece over this last summer about Kamala Harris, and part of the difficulty of her job is that we've never defined 
what a vice president is or should be. And so we all know on this call as a Black woman, no matter what she does, she'll be critiqued. And so my issue with her portfolio was, you know, as of last year, her portfolio was essentially everything but world peace, right? It was voting rights. It was policing. It was immigration. It was the southern border. And so now let's just throw in polling. Like, and I admire the fact that A, she's up for the task and B, Biden trusts her with these very important issues. But, you know, the crux of my op-ed in the Times was, well, is this a trap? Because it's somewhat of a no-win situation because no one's been able to figure these issues out. We have Republicans who will cut off their own noses just to make sure that Democrats don't get a win. And they'll really hurt themselves to make sure Kamala Harris doesn't get a win. So although it's commendable that she is there and she's making speeches and she's trying to move this country and many other countries forward, I really do wonder if she'll be able to do much because of not just the U.S. racism, but the global racism and sexism, where whatever great ideas she might put forth, she and her team, they'll be met with a no just because of the messenger, not even the message. So, Kimberly, I'm going to end with you. Where are your eyes, where is your attention going now as you look ahead to this evolving crisis? And frankly, you know, quite a bit of analysis starting to emerge about the need to value Ukrainians of all races and uh, refugees who are international students in Ukraine. It got off to a slow start, but there has been some growing attention to this. So where is your attention going as you look at the evolution of the crisis in Ukraine? A key thing I'm looking at is not just getting students like the Sumi students, they were evacuated, but I'm trying to also make sure that they are taken care of once they get to the Ukrainian border and they're getting into Poland and Hungary. Um, So I think what a lot of people don't understand, like the lines are long, but it's also there is no guarantee you have food and shelter once you cross into the border. So that's a key thing for me is to, you know, watch. But also, I think we have to maintain our pressure on on the world to keep paying attention. Because in 2014, people cared about Ukraine for two weeks and then, you know, it fell apart and people stopped caring. So to just remember that there are thousands of Africans and Indians and Middle Eastern residents of Ukraine who are leaving, but there are also many who can't leave. I think that's what I'm focusing on is people inside Ukraine who can't get out, but also taking care of those students and and, uh, foreign residents who were able to get out. Well, that is it for today. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Greer, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was Kimberly St. Julian Varnon, Ph.D. student in history at the University of Pennsylvania, and Dr. Christina Greer, associate professor at Fordham University. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Our co-executive producer is Jonathan Blakely. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booker and producer. Emily J. Daly is our producer. Our associate producer is Natina Bean. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three Cs. Today's episode was produced by Steve Lack and Lauren Schild and engineered by Harry Evans, Archie Moore, and Adam Runer. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.